Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, we have a pretty, it, I guess, positive week of soccer to review since uh, it's a six-point weekend at, at Providence Park. Uh, pretty... Uh, <laughs> yeah, the games at Providence Park were positive. Yes. The game at Merlot Field, not so much. Yes. Well, yeah. Not that we cover T2 a lot on here, <laughs> but... We are going to talk a little bit about TT today. There we go. Out a number of questions about TT, um, yes. prob- probably because the result wasn't quite as positive at Merlin. When you Field. keep the club from the nine point weekend, <laughs> all of a sudden you're in the spotlight. Yes. So we're going to get to that. We're going to get to the Timbers and Thorns games. Um, and I guess let's start with the Timbers and their win against the San Jose Earthquakes. Uh, Timbers beat the Earthquakes two to one. I think we were pretty good on the on the predictions um you were definitely you're you were bad but i think you got the going with the wrong part of the score sheet so i predicted a 2-0 timbers win so i very was very close spot on until san jose scored in the 87th minute and, and richard predicted a valeri goal uh should have predicted a valeri assist or, <laughs> or a few of them um, yeah but you're handing out the points this week, not me, so... I am handing out the points, and obviously you were very close. Although the Earthquakes came very close to a goal at the end of the first <laughs> half, too. We'll talk about that. But obviously you knew that the Timbers were going to be the dictating force in this game. You predicted a score, commensurate with it. I've got to give you 8.9 points. And we talked about this before, how I'm a little bit more generous <laughs> with the points. I feel like being generous, you were very close. As far as my side bet, look, I said Valeri was going to score a goal. He didn't score a goal. He actually didn't come particularly close to a goal either, even though he had two assists. So I'm going to give myself 3.1 points. All right. Yeah, no, he's he's on the assist. He's moving to the playmaker role right now. up to nine assists on the year all of a sudden. I think it's eight. You think it's right? I think it's eight. I think you're right. (laughs) Close, though. Yes. Maybe after this weekend. We'll see. Yeah, (laughs) I'm never going to say that I've got these stats memorized, so this could be an ongoing game where I say wrong things and you correct me. Let's start with Valeri, uh, since that was one of the points we were going to talk about. But let's start there, since we were talking about him uh, with the assist. He has five assists uh, in the last two games. He's assisted on every single one of the Timbers' last five goals, uh, which is a Timbers' record. Where's this coming from? I mean, he he's a guy that I think came to MLS as 
uh, primarily we thought of as a playmaker, had goals, but we expected him to be the main um, person providing assists. It's changed a little bit. He still had 11 assists last year, but the goal total was 21. That He was the Timbers' main goal scorer. And now recently, he, he's, at least in the last two games, he, he's been finding a way to get the Timbers um, on the board by creating the goal-scoring chances. I, I think he had created eight chances against uh, Seattle and, and six chances, I want to say, against San Jose led the game in both of those two weeks in a row. So why do you think that he's falling into that role again now? And obviously, it's been very important for the Timbers. I think a lot of it is just Samuel Armenteros, because all of the open play assists he have has been goals by Samuel Armenteros. But you mentioned the pure quantity of chances created, so it's not all Sam. A lot of it is just the formation, I think. So in the last two games, they've basically gone with the same formation, having him in the middle as the only playmaker, as opposed to having him and Sebastian Blanco at the same level of the field. Blanco came back this week, whereas he was on the bench, mostly injured in Seattle, and he came into the central midfield role that we saw him play against Atlanta. I think that's a pretty good hint that they have found where Valeri works. They have found that Blanco can work in other places, still get up on the left flank in attack. And we're likely to see the numbers maybe not continue at this rate, but maybe start coming together at the rate that we've seen in previous years for Diego Valeri because they've just found the place where he's going to be most productive. Yeah, I I don't have too much to add to that. I mean, I was going to point to the formation as well. We've seen the formation in the last two games has been similar, but it's been pretty different from the formation they've been using previously. And I I think that's contributed a lot to why Valeri hasn't really... It had many assists um, until only three assists up until the last two games where he gets um, five. So we'll see if the, because of that um, and because of good now going into the success of Samuel Armenteros in this formation, if the formation is something that if we're going to see this maybe be the formation that Savaresi goes with or if, depending on the opponent, if we're going to continue seeing the changes. I, I think we'll probably continue seeing changes, but yeah. it has been very effective at least in the last two games against to be fair, weaker opponents um, with with kind of having Valeri in that role and Samuel Romero's up front with the two front. You probably see this too, but every time the lineups come out an hour before the game, you get a lot of people either on our timelines and our mentions trying to predict what the formation is going to be. <laughs> and I saw a lot of people kind of looking at this team sheet and going, oh, they're going back to the 4-2-3-1. No, they didn't. I'm tired of trying to predict what Giovanni Savarese <laughs> is going to do. That's fair. I want to embrace the fact that we don't know what he's going to do. And after these last two games, it's tempting to say, hey, maybe they've got something going with the 4-3-1-2. They're also going into a very different environment, a different set of challenges down in Los Angeles. So I don't know what he's going to do, and I'm tired of trying to figure it out. All I know is that Valeri, his numbers have skyrocketed since they switched to this formation. Armenteros, he's in this weird role where even though Dionis Priya is starting up top with him, he operates as a lone forward a lot of time and gets the freedom to explore all that space. Um, almost like he's a Saturday Night Live sketch and needs more cowbell or something <laughs> like that. But it seems to be working for at least those two. And if you were somebody that wanted to try to predict formations, Giovanni Savarese has generally stuck with what's worked, whether it's been formations or individual players in individual roles. And there's no doubt that those two players are working right now. Yeah, I, I mean, Armenteros is, is a starter at this moment. I mean, you, there's no way that we're going to see him coming off the bench. Okay, at, so at what level of style, right. starter is he? Because we've got <laughs> Chara, Valeri, Blanco level, where in ink on the lineup card. Then we've got Mabiala, who has not missed a minute this year, but you're still kind of wondering, like, he's not quite at the level of those guys because he hasn't 
settle hasn't had the root settle in quite like those guys. Maybe he should be at that level at this point. Where is Armenteros on that spectrum? I, I'm I'm going to actually put him at the Jeff Adnello spectrum. There you um, go. That's which nice. is which is he's going to start as long as he continues producing and playing like they want him to play. But there's someone behind him that w- could potentially take that if we start seeing um, him slip. So is that the same level that Alvis Powell and Zarek Valentin are at? Yeah, it, it might be similar. Okay. They're, they're probably in that same boat as well. I just kind of pointed out Nella. But I, I think the, the point is he's going to keep starting as long as he's scoring goals. I mean, he might miss a game. He might not score. It's not like he's sure. immediately going to be out of the lineup. Um, but unless he goes into a dry spell, I, I think that given how well Samuel Armenteros has been producing and the fact that, you know, Audi only has two goals this season, it's, it's not like he's been putting up numbers um, that's really competed with that. I think we're going to continue seeing him in the lineup. And the connection with him and Valeri right now, like you said, it's working. And they they were the they scored the they led the Western Conference in goals last year, this team. And they haven't. They're right in the middle, maybe on the lower end of middle. They've played fewer games than other teams. But the goal scoring has been okay, but not great this year. If they're finding something that's going to work, that could be a strength for them in the second half. Uh, I think that's what we're going to see the Giovanni Savaresi go with. How many of the Timbers starting 11 that we saw on Friday do you consider kind of locked in starters right now? So Armenteros, we're not saying he's going to be a starter forever, but you're saying that he's playing so well that he has to start. How many other players out of that starting 11 would you put in the same boat? I think a good number of them. I think there's questions about Espria. I don't okay. necessarily think he's going to start. I think Cascante, there's questions, cause I, I th- not because he's played poorly, but because there is, with Liam Ritual coming back, someone that's going to push him, I, I think, okay. at least in training. And so that's going to be more of a training field battle, okay. um, I think, to some degree. And I, I think there are questions similarly with Olam and um, you know, Polo coming back, potentially. Whoever the um, other central yeah. midfielder du jour is. Yeah, whatever. Char, I think, is the only central midfielder, really, that's locked in there. I, sure. I think it's a battle between Flores, Olam, Polo, Guzman, even. Paredes, when he gets um, Paredes, of course, yeah. um, coming back from injury. And so I think none of, besides Char, none of those central midfielders should feel too safe in the role. Um, but I think pretty much everyone else is locked in. I think, like you said, you know, Zarek Valentin now with Powell can lose their spots, but I think as long as they maintain reasonably, stay at the level they've been at, they're going to be in those positions. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's, there's definitely not a set lineup at, at this point, but there, there's yeah. a good number of players that I think we're going to keep seeing week to week. And even some of the people that we think are set, they're probably one or two bad games away from being in a pure competition. Speaking of, it's not like it was a complete 90-minute <laughs> no. performance from the Timbers on Saturday. Good 30 minutes in each half, very bad 15 minutes to close each half. So Timothy asks, why did the Timbers appear to struggle late in both halves versus San Jose? Now, I've written about this today for our site, but I want to hear what you have to say because, as we've already discovered once in this opening segment, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> it, I think that, I mean, they're especially with the second half, I, I think they allowed San Jose to stay in the game too long. And, and so I, I think San Jose, San Jose is not a good team and, and I don't think they looked like a good team. 
uh, overall on Saturday. But at some point when they're down to only two nothing, they're one goal away from getting back in the game. They start pressuring the Timbers late in the game, and, and suddenly they get that goal. And, and suddenly there's this confidence and this momentum shift and maybe just a little bit of lack of focus from the Timbers to let San Jose get back in. I, I mean, that's a goal I think that should have been saved. Jeff Adnella clearly, uh, as he smacked the ground afterwards, <laughs> wanted that one back. Um, one of the, I think, um, poor uh, moments for him this year. Yeah, one um, of the few moments yeah. of weakness we've seen from Dadanella. <laughs> so I, I think, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to sort of just lack of focus to some degree against a weaker team and, and letting them get back into the game. I, yeah. I don't think it necessarily comes down to a big um, functional issue with with the formation or the lineup. I do think the Timbers lost something when they made their substitutions late in the game. Um, speaking mm-hmm. towards the end of the game, I, I think it just felt like the momentum shifted when Armenteros came off. And um, I, I just it didn't feel like they were playing at the same level necessarily, yeah. maybe just because of a, that momentum shift. But uh, overall, I, I mean, I think this was more on the Timbers than it was on anything great San Jose was doing. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we had in the first 30 minutes, the Timbers had something like 62% of possession in the first 30 minutes of the second half. They had something like 56 or 57. And you could see that change over the last 15 minutes of both half as San Jose figuring things out. I, I just don't buy that because the Timbers were able to come out of halftime Giovanni Savaresi said he had talked to his team and wanted a second goal from them. They clearly went out and got that. I just don't think San Jose figured anything out as much as the Timbers have to get used to playing as the favorites. They have established themselves at a certain level of MLS. Teams now are going to respect that. San Jose clearly did. The Timbers were able to control play throughout when they wanted to. They just needed to want to for a little bit longer. I hadn't even thought about the substitutions angle of it. But definitely the team was feeding off of Armenteros. So when he starts cramping up, when he starts having to be pulled off for Fernando Adi, it takes a lot of the momentum or a lot of the spirit out of your team, right? So I think that's I think that's a really, really good point. I think it leads us into this coming weekend. They're going down to Los Angeles. They're going to play LAFC. It's the first of two consecutive games against LAFC. Sunday's game at 3 o'clock is league play. Wednesday's game is open cup play. Only going to talk about the league game here today. They're going to have to play a different kind of game. They're not going to be the team that LAFC is going to sit off of. They're going to be on the road. They're going to be against a team that has probably more talent. I don't know. At least it has some like some high-end talents that you have to respect. I think it's just going to be a drastically different game. Yeah, and I, I think you look at uh, I mean you look at some of the games they've played this year. Obviously, they played LAFC. Um, that was at home, um, which is a little bit different. I, that was a big win for them. As was the NYCFC game. But I think you maybe compare this game a little bit to the Atlanta game on the road. They're going on the road against one of the top teams in, in the league who has a lot of uh, firepower in the attack uh, in particular. And how are they going to play against that team? Maybe they use Atlanta as a model. But like I said, you know, predicting Giovanni Savaresi's formations, as, as we've said, is not necessarily the smartest thing. It's not going to win you a lot of money in Vegas if you're going to be betting on that. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's a model they use, or maybe they don't want to use that because they think LAFC might look towards that as a model they're going to use. Maybe they put some tweaks into that. But uh, yeah, I, I think we're going to see something different, uh, a different approach uh, than we've seen maybe in the last two weeks against a much better LAFC team who it sounds like will be close to full strength. Um, and they've been winning not close to full strength in the last few weeks. A lot of people were anticipating that the World Cup break would hit LAFC hard and not without reason. They were missing some prominent people or in the case of Lauren Simon, 
threatened to miss some prominent people. But the addition of Adama Diamante up top, he was player of the week two weeks ago in MLS after scoring a hat trick, gives them a threat that they didn't have when they were here before. They had, I don't even think Marco Sudeña played before. I think he was injured with an ankle. I don't know. It was, seems like another another season at this point <laughs> that they were here. But either way, a player like Marco Sudeña is going to be more of a worker, pull people out of position, uh, be a complement to the Carlos Vela type players. Adama Diamante has hit the ground running in this league, and so that's going to give them an entirely different threat. The one thing I wanted to talk to you about before we moved on and move on and talk about some impending news this week is how you would manage these two games. We've talked all year about how deep the Timbers are. How do you use that depth to manage these two games in four days against the same team while still meeting both your league and cup goals? I think that you meet your league goals first and you play the best possible lineup with the best formation and best system you think is going to get you the win on Sunday. And I think I think that's what Giovanni Savaresi is going to do. I think you learn from that game at that point. I think no matter what, we're probably going to see some rotation. I don't necessarily think it's going to be if he can swing it, I don't think it's going to be as much rotation as we saw in the first U.S. Open Cup game, depending on how his players are feeling and whether he feels like they can go Sunday, Wednesday, and then Saturday again. But that that is a, a big, big workload, and I, there's certainly a number of players he's going to have to sit um, to make sure they can handle that. And I, I think they are going to sit some starters in that Wednesday game and, ro- and make some rotations. But I, I think you manage Sunday as best as you can, you play your top lineup there, and then you reevaluate who looks like they're ready to go on Wednesday, who maybe came out of the game a little bit early or came off the bench, and what formation or tweaks can we make against this team to change things up going in now that they've learned whatever they've learned from Sunday. So I expect the best lineup Sunday, and I expect something pretty different on Wednesday. Same. You don't have depth like this and don't use it. If you and I, a couple moments ago, are hypothesizing that seven or eight of the current 11, or the 11 we saw on Saturday, are entrenched in their jobs, I only think two or three of those players actually end up playing on Wednesday. The people, they're going to be coming off of 90 minutes, probably most of those players. Maybe Antonella goes twice in a row if you really feel like, hey, we want to put as strong as team as possible out there. And then maybe you get the test results back or the, the tracking numbers back on a couple of people and you see they can go. But you got to use the depth. Got to use that. Speaking of depth, the Timbers, as you've reported, as a couple of other t- people have reported, are about to add another piece this week. A 20-year-old Argentine attacker from San Lorenzo, Lorenzo Tomas Konechny. What do you know about Mr. Konechny? Yeah, I mean, I think we're still going to learn more about him, but he sounds like a versatile attacking player that's considered a young and exciting prospect. I don't think he necessarily lived up to expectations at San Lorenzo. It seemed like a prime time for him to maybe make a move, but he but he's 20 years old, and he's been with the Argentinian youth system. He's been a prospect there with the national team, and um He's coming here, I, I think, on a very favorable deal for the Timbers. He's coming here on a loan. If it doesn't work out, it's not much of a risk from the Timbers' end. If it does work out, it sounds like they're going to have to sign him as a young designated player. But at that point, they should know how he fits into the system and whether um, whether it's a smart move to do that. So they're right. definitely you know hedging their bets like maybe they 
didn't in the past uh and obviously some prominent signings um, <laughs> that haven't worked out. Well, who are you talking about? <laughs> Another Argentinian. Oh, okay. That's currently out on loan, mm. um, Lucas Milano, who's, who's done a little bit better out on loan, but obviously it didn't um, work out in the years, a uh, year, oh, little over a year that he was here. Sure. Um, and, and so I think this loan option is a really smart um, idea for the Timbers to be able to, to get him. And I, I think it, it worked out. Um, to some degree because of his standing at San Lorenzo and um, their willingness to maybe get him on loan and then hope that if his value rises, they end up getting a pretty good uh, transfer fee for him later on. The San Lorenzo part of it is most interesting to me. And I understand that most fans are going to look at this and say, this is a player that could be a prominent player adding to this team. I want to know where he's going to fit in. I want to know how good he is. he is. And I understand that we're going to find that out over the next weeks. The fact that San Lorenzo, in their time of need to get somebody get somebody off their roster, a prominent player that they want to play someplace that they trusted, that he was going to get some playing time, and they turned to the Timbers. This is a story that reminds me of the relationship we've talked about between the Timbers and Saprissa in Costa Rica. And I think it's an example of how the work that Gavin Wilkinson and Ned Gravovoy do to cultivate these relationships lead to actual, tangible benefits. Like you alluded, this isn't somebody that is going to be a full designated player, at least at the beginning. He's going to come in with a low salary hit, partially because Gavin Wilkinson and Ned Grabovoy have found a place in this negotiation, at least in the short term, that can benefit both sides before that full fee gets triggered. And that creativity could be a huge addition to the Timbers, not only into the future, but over the second half of the season. It'll be very, very interesting. It will be interesting also, I think, just in terms of when we're talking about formations, um, how this maybe changes what formations they're going to be playing. Obviously, we um, talked about, you know, Arboleda um, going out on loan, and we'll see um, when he comes off the Timbers roster, what happens like that um, with the, with um, the new signing coming in, um, if we see some official deal happen uh, with that. But the Timbers, I, I think this this is a player that can play in the 10 or, or play on the wing, and maybe it's going to give them more options to if they wanted to go back to the 4-3-3 um, or, or do something that gets a little bit more wide players in their formation. I think this potentially could give them versatility if, if, he fit, if he's able to fit in quickly uh, in, in the second half of the year. And when you bring it up, it really <clears> seems like that's the only piece missing from what the Timbers have right now is the ability to actually play wide attackers at this point. They've got Espria, they've got Blanco. They can obviously do it, but there isn't a lot of depth there right now, so this obviously adds to it. Uh, we don't have much of an injury update this week because most people are healthy. The one coming into this week was Christian Paredes, who, as Jamie asked in the press conference last week, wasn't injured for Seattle but picked up an injury early in the last week before San Jose obviously wasn't even in the 18 for it. Roy Miller is another person that's a long-term injury. He played 60 minutes on Sunday at Merlo Field against Fresno FC, so he's starting to work his way back. And both were in training today, which is obviously a good sign, but Gio Savaresi won't have his press conference till Thursday when we will be able to um, benefit, I guess, of having it later in the week is maybe True. get um, more clear injury updates. We'll, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a lot of listener questions. Let's go ahead and get to those. Brad, Timbers had close to $3 million in salary on the bench or in the stands against San Jose. Is this a problem? Is Gio's doghouse bigger than we thought? So to answer the second part, I, I don't think it's a doghouse I don't question. think Gio owns a doghouse. So um, I, obviously there's been some issues at times well, um, throughout the year. Explain this to me because you guys, you and Chris did this with Liam Ridgewell. You guys assumed because Liam Ridgewell wasn't getting back in the team immediately that there was a doghouse. 
And maybe you still stand by that, but I personally just thought it was just a manager and a player disagreeing about him losing a place in the 11. I didn't think it was like a doghouse per se. Well, I, I think you're just nitpicking the, the definition of doghouse a little bit. I, I'm, I think I'm there's a... the whole concept of <laughs> doghouse, really. I think it's just a term you hear thrown around in sports, but I think it does come down to players and managers disagreeing. And I think there yeah. was more going on. I think it's when the level goes above, this player isn't playing because of his skill and, and the fact that he's X, Y, and Z on the depth chart. And it goes from that to this player isn't playing because there is some sort of disagreement going on. I mean, that's kind of how I define it. That said... Well, the name was never in, a de- in the doghouse. And I, and I would say that the players that were on the bench... I, I mean, I don't think, I don't think, yeah, I, I think we disagree a little bit on the case of Liam Ridgewell earlier in the season, but I don't think that that was what was going on this week. I, I think in Liam Ridgewell's case, he's just coming back into the team um, after being away uh, and missing some games. So, so your theory is that there have been times this year where Giovanni Savarese has excluded people from his 18 that he thought were better players merely to send a message. I think there are times this year where Giovanni Savarese has made decisions not 100% based on skill on the field, but maybe attitude and how that has translated into training or, or other aspects that aren't. Oh, okay. Well, I see what you're saying there. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if a player is a talented player and he's not training well, he's not going to Yeah, gonna but play. I think it comes with the attitude, too, and other things that we don't always see. And I think this happens with any team. I don't think it's just a Giovanni Savaresi thing or a yeah. Caleb Porter thing or anything. I think with any team, you're going to have situations where maybe there's disagreements between a player and a manager. Maybe there's attitude issues. Maybe, I mean, Espria, not this year necessarily, but in, when Two he went on loan, he, he talked about that. He, when he came back, he talked about how he needed to have a different attitude, and that was part of that situation. So we don't know everything that went on behind the scenes there, but clearly yeah, there I was... Think- I think you and I are just disagreeing with like the level to which something qualifies as doghouse. And yeah. I think that compared to other situations that we've seen, not only here, as you just alluded to, but around the league, there's really nothing that's come close to like a, you. I don't see you as part of our team right now, go away for two months. Like has happened here at times in the past, even when somebody doesn't go out on loan. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think that's right. Um, but I don't think that was really anything of that was in play this week. And like I yeah. said, Liam Ridgewell's coming back from his significant other having a baby. He, he hasn't been training. Um, he was, hasn't been in the game. So he's just been a little bit away from the team. And I think he's a player, given his injury history, he's either going to start or, or he's probably not going to even be in the 18. So I, I'm not surprised to necessarily not see him in the 18. Particularly, I, I mean, be fair to Julio Cascante. He's been doing well. Uh, in Ridgewell's absence, so it's not necessarily fair to immediately um, put Ridgewell back in, even though if even if that's potentially the long term on what's going to happen in the long term. Um, similarly, I, I mean, Polo Guzman just reintegrating. Um, it's obviously been working without them. Why change what's working? And Samuel Armentero, same same thing. Yeah. Um, but coming to the first part of the question, you know, they, there's lots a lot of money on the bench and I think I, we're going to get into some of the questions I think in the hot take segment a little bit um, really just going to discuss things and I think today in the hot take segment we'll see how <laughs> hot they are but uh, yeah yeah I think it is a problem ultimately I don't think it's a, a problem for one game but um, and it might not even be a problem for this season but when you're looking at your roster you don't want a lot of money sitting on the bench because that's not the most effective way 
to manage the salary cap if you have some of your highest paid players sitting on the bench. If that's going to be the case, maybe you need to go out and get use that money in a different way and bring in a better player that's going to start. So in the long run, yeah, if you're, if you're seeing designated players sitting on the bench and high salary players sitting on the bench consistently, it's a sign that maybe the salary cap can be managed in a better way. Um, but in a specific game, no, I don't think that's a big deal. Um, but it does raise questions for the long term. Yeah, maybe. I admit to not really thinking about it. I mean, just my sense is that it's not – it can be looked as a virtue, too, that some of the more efficient players on your roster that aren't high-salaried are playing to the level of some of your high-salaried players. So I think it just sounds like a dichotomy that's kind of a six-of-one-half situation because is it really that those players are playing bad? Well, in two cases, like you brought up Guzman Apollo, they haven't even been here to play poorly. Um, I think it's more likely that somebody like Flores is becoming just a really super efficient use of a roster spot. But at the same time, you kind of convinced me that you you don't want those players sitting there for a long period of time. Let's go to Peter's question. He asked, which is worse? There are exactly zero American forwards and midfielders on the MLS All-Star team or the fact that Diego Chara isn't in the team. I could care less about Americans, uh, Mexicans. I don't care what All-Star's nationalities are. Chara not being in the team... Yeah, it sucks, but like when you look at the All-Star team, personally, there are a couple of players in there that are there, and I shake my head how they're ahead of Diego Chara, but I don't want to fall into the trap of taking the All-Star game seriously. <laughs> I, yeah, I think Diego Chara deserves it. I think there's been a... I think maybe the good side of him not making it is that people have talked about that a little bit, and he's maybe gotten a little bit more credit recently just because people are recognizing <clears throat> that maybe he should have been on the all-star team um of those two yeah that that's worse for me because i i'm with you i don't really care what nationality the players and i'm also and i i like the fact we're seeing more and more international players come in because yeah. i i think it's better for the growth of the league i, I obviously i want to see um the developmental system within the united states improve and you know do MLS is a good has a good opportunity with academies to develop American talent, but I think yeah. the ultimate goal is to raise the level of the league as much as possible and uh, find a way to bring American players into that fold, not try to lessen the the quality of the league by getting rid of international players to make room for Americans. Yeah, I don't want Americans for the sake of Americans. I want <laughs> Americans to earn it. Uh, ben asks, what are the chances that the Timbers make MLS Cup? Um, a percentage on it? I would say... 24%? No, 29%. Trying to think about how many teams are in MLS. Oh, I, I don't well, know. just the Western Conference, though. So I think there are 12 teams yeah, in the I Western Conference. Yeah, I guess that's 12 teams. So I think 29 is pretty high. Actually, yeah. now I'm thinking about it because we're still so far away. I would say closer to 21 or 22%. Say 15%. Eh, that seems better. I, I just... We're, we're good at math. I think that... I think that the Timbers have... I think it's fair right now to say that the Timbers could be a contender. I, I think they've done well enough. They deserve credit. They, they're they third in the Western Conference on points per game at this point. And, um, yeah, I, I think that they've shown that they can beat the best teams in the league. They've shown that they can adapt to different circumstances. This looks like a team that could do very well going into the playoffs because their ability to adapt to every opponent. Uh, so, yeah, there's a chance that they're going to make MLS Cup. They also could be the best team in the league and lose on penalty kicks in uh, or in the leg two of um, you know yeah. it's somewhere it's playoffs are very fluky and anything can happen. So uh, putting too high of a percentage, even on you know Atlanta, 
making MLS Cup uh, is, a, I don't think, a great idea. Yeah, they didn't come particularly close last year, and they had a talented <laughs> team then. Yeah, I mean, the history of MLS, there's only been one MLS Cup playoffs that wasn't really fluky, and that was 2015, where the deserved winner won throughout that one. Uh, we're going to have an interview with Thorns goalkeeper A.D. French coming up here, but there's one more question that we wanted to get to. That's from Kelly. Kelly asked, does Samuel Armenteros's blonde beard have superpowers? Jamie, you fashion yourself in the sports world an investigative sort. What have you found out about this? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it clearly has superpowers. <laughs> I think that I think it's something he's not going to be able to get rid of um, oh, as God. long as he keeps scoring goals. It's gonna it's gonna have to be there, but because it's something maybe maybe it blinds defenders because oh. he seems to be you know finding shots like the the, the, the second goal uh, against San Jose just right through two <laughs> defenders and the goalkeeper. I think it's probably blinding um, blinding some defenders. Yeah. The so. first couple of days he had that was truly <laughs> blinding. It was weird. He looked like a, um, a Grand Theft Auto rendering that had just like gone a little bit weird. Like the computer was rendering the face and then all of a sudden like shifted the dimensions when it got down to the chin and made the chin way too beard because too big because the beard was a little bit matching his skin color too much so you're just like it's a guy wearing a mask of himself <laughs> but thankfully it's toned down a little bit um so our guest this week is thorns goalkeeper adriana franch um we wanted to have her on the show this week jamie just because she has been playing incredibly yeah, um, which isn't a surprise, given what what we saw from her last year. Uh, obviously, 2017 NWSL Goalkeeper of the Year. Um, really a great, great person to talk to. Um, I have found that in the past, so it's really nice to have her on the show um, now that she's back healthy. And I think, you know, as it's made a difference for the Thorns having her back in there. We'll get into more talk about how the Thorns are doing and where they're at in the playoff race and things like that in a little bit. But yeah, now let's bring in AD. And just as a warning to our listeners, uh, this was, we were able to speak to AD today on a cell phone. Um, she called in. Uh, so it's a little bit grainy in spots, but um, I, I think she had a lot of great things to say. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. Yeah, AD, thank you so much for, for coming on with us. Um, we've been really looking forward to getting you on the pod. Um, First of all, I guess I want I guess I want to start with this season. Um, we're we're going to get into some maybe you know um, more exciting things about um, your background and um, so last year and your growth as a goal here. But just this year has obviously been uh, kind of an up and down year for you with the injury and having to deal with that mid season after coming off such a good year. How how has it been for you? Sort of you know having to. Um, kind of have that break and, and, and taking care of yourself and have, having to deal with that injury and now finally getting back on the field? Well, I wouldn't call it a break. Uh, <laughs> I definitely had to do a, um, some work to get back, but, you know, it's it's nothing um, that I don't feel that I haven't dealt with before. Um, you know, 2013 to 2014, um, being able to play your entire rookie year and then... Um, you know, out, out the next. So, and being out completely with the ACL pair. So, I was just happy it wasn't until a full season. It was just uh, uh, six, seven weeks. The contrast between your first few years as a pro, when you went from, you got drafted, you go from Kansas to Rochester, have to go from Rochester to Norway, and then back here to Portland, compared to the stability of the last two and a half years you've had here in Portland, that contrast from the outside looks so stark. Is it just as stark when you're having to live that as your reality? Um, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if an athlete, if you kind of 
anticipate the moves or um, be prepared for kind of anything because it's still is a business. Um, you know, working here, I got to play, and then just being out that next. Um, if I would have been able to play in 2014, I would have been two years back to back in in uh, New York. So. Um, I mean, the injury plays into it a little bit. Going from going to Norway, the decision there was, um, you know, I, I am coming back from an injury, and I'm also 20, 24 years old. Why not have, like, a life experience overseas, a cultural experience um, and, and in the soccer world and just life in general? Um, but, you know... Um, People know about Portland. People know what the fans are like and um, that environment to come in and to play. Like, I knew in, in 2013 um, when Western New York came to play Portland here, and there was 13,000 fans at the time, and at that time, that was one of the max, I think, that year. And so being able to experience that home after home after home game, you know, those are, those are what... Uh, athletes we kind of we kind of live for and the fact that I've been able to be here for the two now for the third year um, you know and you just you buy into the team that you're playing with uh, you have to every year um, or it, it can it can be difficult um, but yeah being here with the stories um and with the culture that we have set as a team, as a club, as a community, um, in some ways, it feels like home. And um, it's it's a nice feeling to have a little bit of that um, security, but at the same time, we as athletes know that it's still a business. <laughs> with coming to the Thorns, um, you kind of talked about the stability here and obviously last year was a big year for you um in terms of winning nwsl goalkeeper of the year and also you know helping the team win the nwsl championship and one thing that nadine Onger has told me a lot when i've talked to her about you know your performance last year is talking about you as a goalkeeper what she has said that she thinks stands out a lot is that the saves you make um with your athleticism and the way you play it's especially impressive that you're able to, you know, make those diving saves and not just bat a ball away, but be able to catch a ball and control a ball um, on a shot and prevent maybe a rebound uh, here and there. I- I'm interested for, from you how you sort of develop that skill because I-, I don't see um, as many goalkeepers. They-, they might make the save that you might make, but you- you're able to control the ball and-, and find a way to catch it and not allow the rebound there. Um, I think it depends on uh, your technique. Uh- you know, there's there's different ways in which you you, you push off your feet front for like your front foot or your back foot, and um, just those different ways can make a difference to if you parry or if you catch. And the things that Nadine and I work on constantly every single day are ways in which that we can put ourselves in the best position to catch a ball. Um, you know, in, in training, we kind of our requirement is to catch everything as much as possible always try to bring two hands but understand the moment and when that you need to extend with one hand and you need to choose which hand to use um, if it is out of your range to be able to catch and um, you know that's one of our focuses is to try to catch as much as you possibly can get yourself in the right position and 
um, the right balance of your body to be able to do that. I want to stick with Nadine AD and ask you, because I get to see how many different ways she tries to put you and Britt and Bella through your paces in order to kind of distract you and make sure your technique is on point once you get through those distractions. What is the weirdest drill that she has ever concocted for you guys? Uh, the weirdest drill. Oh, goodness. That's a good question. I don't know if I could answer that. Um, the weirdest drill. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, we, I mean, we love, we basically have um, kind of a, a, a box to be able to step off of or step onto and jump off of. Um, so maybe like, I think one of them was step off the, or single, oh, my goodness, how do I want to describe this? Uh, <laughs> That's how weird this is. It's undescribable. Yeah, to try to give you to try to give you an idea. So that box, we're behind that box. We step on it. We try to jump, off, drive off of it as if we're coming up for a cross. We land with two feet in front of it. And we jump over a hurdle like a high, like a, a thigh waist high hurdle. Um, and then down to a low ball. Uh, then we ended up coming back into like a pole of six and there were like a few players in to come off for a high ball from one angle and then as you finish that high ball to catch with people inside then you it's almost like a, a kind of a circuit in a sense where it's like one drill one drill one drill one drill but it all it's like high ball low ball high ball foot save like front smother like um so it all just it it, it throws she throws all kinds of different things at you it's training's usually um there's consistency in within the drills that we do but it's usually not the same um so anticipating that you know the games you're not going to see the same shots you're not going to see the same uh type of runs or, or anything like that so she, she always mixes it up for us, keeps us on our toes, is always excited to do new drills and, and even talk with us through them. Sometimes she um, comes up with ideas and, of ways in which that we need to work on a specific technique. And um, so we go out there and we kind of play with it with her. I'm like, oh, this feels natural. This makes sense. This isn't game realistic, but it works on the technique. But like different things like that we talk about all the time. That's why I love our group that we train with. In terms of in terms of loving that group that you train with, it seems like you guys are just having so much fun when you're out there working with a dean and in the group you guys have with um, you and Britt and Bella as well. How what is that atmosphere like? Um, <clears throat> the goalkeeper group every day because you guys are obviously separate and sort of having your own training. What's the atmosphere like? It and how much does the kind of the fun um, fun but hard work atmosphere that's been created um, kind of help contribute to, to the success you, you've had as goalkeepers? Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, for, for different situations, different times within my personal career, so this is my opinion, is, um, you know, there's always that competition bit within goalkeeping, right? Because you, you, there's only one spot. And usually if you're in that spot for... Um, like that's it really unless um, 
we need to mix it up in some way, shape, or form. But um, it's not like halfway through they're going to change one of us out. It's not like um, there's 10 minutes left in the game. Let's put a keeper in. Like uh, that that position stays usually stays that way for at least the game. Um, so that little bit of competition can be hard, and it can be a hard environment to be in because you also are so close. You work with each other every single day in such a small, close-knit like area, and it's just like the things that we talk about. Like um, it's, it's competition, but it's also support as well. And um, you know, and a lot of people don't understand unless you're in it. Uh, from what I hear. <laughs> um, so there have been times that you don't get along with the person that you're training with because, you know, the competitiveness kind of gets involved and um, there's a little bit of disrespect, but I think with the environment that we have, we respect each other. We, we want everybody to continue to succeed because, um, you know, I push Britt and Britt pushes me and then Nadine pushes us all. And the expectation of you as an individual and then us as a group to get better every single day, like, we pride, I think we pride ourselves on that. And um, because we have that, that allows us to respect each other. And then it allows us to have enjoy the times where, oh, that ball just went through my legs because I was too busy trying to really get to a ball that I think is going here. And like, we can sit there and laugh about it. So, like, the expectation and, and the pressure that we put on e- each other is, a bit, I think, is the right amount to um, then have fun with the fun moments. And, and that environment really is um, set kind of by Nadine and the way that she coaches and the way her personality is. Well, AD, before I let you go, I want to ask you about something that happened a couple of weeks ago around the club. We have our Stand Together Week where everybody that's involved with the Portland Timbers and Thorns, we get out in the community, we work with the community uh, outreach people here at the club, and we just try to, everybody here, get back and get involved in the community. You were involved in the week's very first event. Unfortunately, you keep reminding me of this. And I think you were involved in six other events throughout the week. Most people are involved in one or two. You were involved in six or seven why so many events, AD? Why uh, why stand together is so important to you? Uh, well, the first year I was here, I wasn't able to be a part of it, and I heard um, you know from players like Emily Magnus that it's, a, it's just a really cool week to be a part of, and um, you know being able to give back is, is is great, and it's something that I think everybody should try to do, um, whether that's you know thirty minutes here, an hour there. 10 hours a week, you know, whatever it might be for someone, giving back is is a, is a very satisfying feeling and um, making a, a kid smile. I really like the kids and um, meeting them and seeing what a difference um, even smile can make for some of these people. And, um, so wasn't able to do that the first year and so when I was able to do it the second year I was like okay I'll sign up I'll sign up for a couple but you know I don't um let's see how it goes and um I, I fell in love with the whole process the fact that we're able to give back to um different organizations who help support us as well um to be able to see kids and um whether that's doing some art, uh, 
some gardening, whatever it may be, just to be able to hang out with them. And um, they think it's pretty cool and it, it can make a difference with some of the different projects that people are doing. And um, on top of it, we're able to be with the fans that support us every single day. And, um, and, and they get to know us and um, we get to know them. It kind of humanizes us as players as well. Um, we're not just players on a field, it becomes more about the, the human being and the people that we are, and I think that's what's really important is just the way that sports can bring people together, and um, it's, it's an amazing thing, and I, I enjoy it so much that I want to do it as much as I possibly can within that, you know, within that week that um, we're kind of allowed to do as much as we want. <laughs> Well, thanks again to AD. Yeah, it's it's always really cool, especially I, I think we are out there in Thorn, at Thorns training a little bit more, obviously, than you know seeing that every day and, and fans aren't to kind of hear talk about um, the sort of goalkeeper community they have here with Nadine <laughs> and and uh, it, it we'll we'll see if people can visualize the. Uh, the drills she was talking about. I, I think I posted one of the drills on Facebook earlier this year, so maybe people can find that. But it's it's really interesting just watching their drills and also just how much fun they're having out there. I, I think it does. It, it, obviously, goalkeepers are all their own little community, but it does feel like it's different and it stands out compared to other you know goalkeeping sessions I've seen. I agree with you. There was a time a couple of weeks ago where Nadine had taken some of the uh, mannequins and taken some of the goal sticks and kind of created this circuit where um, you had to jump and then duck and then jump and then duck, like duck below like a three and a half foot um, kind of a limbo bar. And then she was going to kick a ball at you as as hard (laughs) as she possibly could. And it just seemed ridiculous, and they found a way to laugh at it. So uh, that might have been why it was difficult for AD to walk through that, because <laughs> they're doing stuff like that all the time, where do seven things, and then Nadine is going to kick a ball at you as hard <laughs> as she can. So if you want to be a professional goalkeeper, that's what your life is going to be. And it works. I mean, I, I think the improvement, and AD's talked about it. I mean, she's obviously a very talented goalkeeper, yeah. um, and her athleticism, uh, I mean, is obviously just natural athleticism is a massive strength for her. But the improvement she's had under AD and training in this environment, I, I think um, you have to point to that at least to some degree, give AD credit, but also give that credit when you look at her winning NWSL Goalkeeper of the Year last year. So these drills, as crazy as they are, seem to seem to be working. Best U.S. goalkeeper out there right now on the women's side has gotten called up to two national team camps, hasn't been capped yet. Hopefully those things will change soon. And if not, hopefully her success with the Thorns continue. Let's go to the hot take interlude. I almost don't even want to say his name. Chris Reifer. Chris Reifer Memorial Hot Take Interlude, which you and I are not being very hot takey no, about, but I think there are a couple things that we want to talk about. Yeah, I think uh, I think we, we're sort of using the segment this week to just talk about things. And I, I thought for a minute I was being hot takey, but then I, I looked... Uh, at all the mentions for Soccer Made in Portland, I was like, oh, no, everyone's talking about this. So I'm That's not... That's a good barometer. <laughs> I'm, this is not a hot take at all. But I wanted to talk about Fernando Adi. Um, given... You mean Fernando Adi? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Um, absolutely not. Uh, hey, hey, this is getting a little personal. <laughs> You're actually pointing, physically pointing at me. Do not do that. Um, but anyways, with... With Sammy Armenteros uh, and the way he's been performing in recent weeks, I think we said it was six goals in the last seven games after uh, not scoring, I think, in his first eight games as a timber. He's clearly 
Did I Other, switch it? No goals in his first seven, but then six in his last eight. Okay. Six in his last eight. Six, seven, eight. <laughs> the numbers <laughs> in there. But obviously at this point, as we talked about earlier, he sort of claimed, at least if they're doing it in a one-striker formation, he's claimed that role in the field. We'll see if they do two strikers, if Fernando Adi um, is able to come back into the lineup. But he only has two goals this season, and as we talked about earlier, it's a lot of money to be sitting on the bench right now. Uh, teams in MLS only have three designated players, and so it's really important that teams make the best use uh, of those spots. And so I, I think it is a real question now. Is Adi going to be on this roster through the season, and, and certainly is he going to be on this roster next year? And I think that if he, the Timbers do not move him, at this point, if they don't move him during this transfer window, which I think the Timbers will do if the right deal comes up for Audi and for them, um, if, if they have the right opportunity to bring him up, which may or may not happen, um, I, I think they will be very open um, to making a move if that right deal comes up with the right amount of money attached to it and a good place for Audi to end up. But if they don't move him now, I, I think he's going to be gone at the end of the season because at this point, Sammy Armenteros... Uh, is on a loan deal. If the Timbers want to buy that contract, he will be here through next year. And if he continues to perform as he does, if he continues to look like a guy that can be their striker, it makes a lot of sense for them to bring him back next year and go out and look for better use uh, of the spot that Audi's taking up as a designated player spot because you don't want your designated players sitting on the bench for a long time. Audi's been really good for the Timbers, but if they don't see him... Uh, taking on a starting role, it just doesn't make sense for him to be here. Um, and you even look on the Thorn side, you looked at when Allie Long moved in the offseason, and um, if you're just looking at her as a player and what she did for the Thorns, and just looking at that, I mean, she was a critical player for the Thorns for a long time, but at the point that she was not going to be a starter anymore, it did not make sense for her to stay here. Um, and I think Audie's in the same case. I, I think we're going to see him move, if not now, um, in the next few months. That's a lot to say about Fernando Adi. I also think you just forecasted Alvis Powell kicking Fernando Adi at some point next year. <laughs> so I don't, know, I don't know what you're getting at there. Um, no, this is one of these cases where, and I really want to encourage people who are listening to this or read what I do to try to check me on this. Because Fernando is like one of my six or eight favorite guys on the team to talk to. I think his positivity is great. I, I just think he's a good guy. So when you think about people like that leaving the team, it's just a natural human instinct to say no. But kind of objectively looking at it the way that you are, if this person with this salary number want another team, you would naturally ask questions about their future in the team. So as you kind of laid out, I think it's fluid, but I think the circumstances right now do call into question as to whether this situation is right for him, right for the club, or are they going to work to change that going forward? Yeah, even if he was, I mean, Audi's done so much for this team and been such an important player. And so I'm not trying to take away that. And I think he could potentially still be. Maybe, maybe we'll see. Maybe he will earn his way back onto the team through somehow coming on in the second half and putting up numbers like he did in the past. But it's a flat out player and salary number and what role are they playing and his salary number is too high for him to be used off the bench absolutely well from one frozen take to another (laughs) i was up at merlot field on sunday afternoon and got to see what i thought was a very talented t2 team going up against a usl side that had 
decent players, but as most people are in USL journeyman players, still trying to find their way in this upper level of professional soccer in this country. And at one point in that game, T2 was down 4-1. to one. Ended up being 4-2, to two, but I believe 10 of the 11... I'm sorry, 1, 2, 3, 8 of the 11 players who started for T2 on Sunday are on Major League Soccer contracts. Going into that game, I thought they were going to be performing very well. They were going up against the ninth place team in the league. They were eighth place, having struggled for a while. But when I was watching that game, I realized that Cameron Knowles, the head coach of T2, has this very unique problem that maybe has no solution. He has to, whenever his team is at home and the first team is at home, basically scrap together a team of what he's given from the people from the first team that need their minutes. And obviously... That's going to continue to be a priority for this club is to get those players that are at a higher level, the development time that they need, be it an MLS or when they don't get it there at the USL level. I just think the balance is a little bit off right now that this organization, having not had a USL team for a long time, maybe hasn't quite figured out how best to manage that uh, those dual needs. But either way, on Sunday at Merlot Field, I think that um, seeing Fresno leave there as 4-2 winners. It's got me questioning what what the team needs to do to make sure that the results at the second level, at the USL level, are matching the aspirations that the club has for the players that are playing there. Yeah, I think earlier this year, we were talking about all the promise of T2, and they were earning some really, really big results, and, and they were looking like the team that could be one of the best teams in USL, just... And they had the talent. I mean, we look at the T2 roster, some of the promising players on that roster, along with the number of first team players getting opportunities there. I, I think it is disappointing to see um, that them kind of not sustain that. And it does, I think, lead to real questions. Obviously, last year um, was, was an absolute failure for T2. And, and the the team addressed it by making a, ch- a coaching change and, and really overhauling that roster. Um but even this year, I, I mean, losses like that, those are really disappointing, particularly with the personnel on the field. And there has to be some sort of reaction to it. It can't just be, oh, well, we're switching lineups. It's just going to be that way sometimes. They have to find a way to make a balance to make this team stay competitive while also giving first-team players an opportunity. And even if it's a new lineup, if it's first-team players coming down to T2 that maybe weren't playing there before – I think they should be expected to do to do better, um, even if there you know there's chemistry issues and things like that. Um, just given the talent on one side versus the other side, I, I think it was really disappointing to see a result like that. Moving on to the Thorns, we actually don't have a ton to talk about with the Thorns, and for a good reason. Friday's match against the Utah Royals ended up being a four to nothing victory, where the Thorns led for. For for 89 minutes. Yes. I, I believe Tobin Heath's goal, when I watched it back on replay, crossed the line at exactly the one-minute mark. From there, going forward, Lindsey Horan scored, Anna Maria Cernogostrovic scored, and then Tyler Lucy ended the scoring in the second half. So there isn't a lot to talk about with this game, although we will hit on some major points regarding lineups and injuries, unfortunately. But let's get to the prediction first. Jamie, <laughs> the eternal pessimist that she is, the lack of faith in the power of Providence Park to turn things around, predicted a 1-1 result. The week before, I predicted, I, I think, a win. I, I, I think I just need to predict the opposite of what's going to happen for the Thorns because I have been way off uh, with, with them this year. You were very off there. You know, usually I try to find a reason to give you some <laughs> points. I'm going to have to give you a zero for this All one. Right. 
Uh, my side bet was that Portland keeps Kristen Press off the score sheet. No, no goals, no assists. Now, Kristen Press had had a goal and an assist in her previous game at home against Sky Blue. Obviously a lower standard than the Thorns. And probably this wasn't the riskiest of bets, but I'm still going to give myself some points here because it was pretty specific. I'm going to give myself 18.6 points. I think that's quite a lot of points. I think it is, but at the same time, <laughs> I've been making these long shot bets for weeks and weeks. But I don't think that was a lo- that long of a shot. It's I one player not getting a goal. So when or was the last assist. time the Thorns had a shutout? Before Friday. Yeah, but she's no, still no, no. one player. Yeah, when was the last time the Thorns had a shutout before Friday? It's it, been, a, been a while, It's been right? a bit. I'd have to look it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But she's still just one player. Who was the Royals' <laughs> most dangerous scoring option on Friday? Mm-hmm. I stand by the fact that I think it's too many points. Oh, Richard just got three bonus points. 21.6 points. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's a first. It is a first in soccer made in Portland history. The judges, just like the Diana Matheson tackle, the points committee has stepped in and awarded me three extra points. Wow. Congratulations, listener. You have some soccer made in Portland history here. This is amazing. Well, apparently Christian Press not scoring and or adding assists is much uh, deserves more points than getting the San Jose score almost right. But okay. Yes, it does. <laughs> All right. I, this is under protest, but let's let's talk about the game. <laughs> um, four to nothing victory. Thorne's best game of the season, true or false? Yeah, I, I, yes. Um, I, yes, I think so. Um, but I, I'm also saying that with the, trying to think back right now to yeah. all the other games, and I, I'm sure I'm being a little bit unfair to, to some other games this season where they've played well. But with everything Thorns, too, there's also this thing in the back of your mind where you don't want to get ahead of yourself because so many times in this short time that we've been doing the show, it's like, all right, they turned a corner, and then we're here seven yeah. days later going... They turned back around. They turned the corner and made a U-turn, went back down a one-way street in the wrong direction. I, I think that this was a really exciting result because they got the clean sheet, as you said, and that's been an issue for them. They've conceded a lot more goals this season than they want, and they've conceded some very poor goals. And so I think getting the clean sheet was really big. I think getting four goals, but not only getting four goals, but getting four goals and having you know Tyler Lucy get a goal, having Tobin Heath get one of those goals, not just having it be all... Lindsay Horan and Christine Sinclair, mm-hmm. which I think, um, and Serna Gorsevich getting goal, which has, I think, been a little bit of a, a problem for the Thorns this year. They've had to rely maybe too much on those players at times. Yeah, those two players. Um, so I think that is also really exciting to see the attack come alive, but in a way that they're getting uh, production all around uh, and not just from two specific players who have, who have carried the team in the attack this year. So for those reasons, yes, I'll, I'll say it was the best performance of the season. I will not say it was a turning point because I have been <laughs> proven wrong too many times and I will I'm not go into it with the uh, positivity I did, I, I think, a week or so ago when I was sure that they had turned a corner and it was smooth sailing from now. Um, this team for me is still hard to judge because it's been so up and down. And I, I think this is promising. I think they can build momentum off this. I think they're going to be at home this week, so it's another opportunity against one of a weaker team um, overall. But yeah, it's hard to say turning point. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to say it. I need to see multiple performances in a row like this. On Sunday against Houston, they're going to have a chance to string another good performance together. The one thing I will say is that we have seen over the 270 minutes that they've played against the Royals this year that the Thorns have some very distinct advantages. 
The Royals have some skilled players in the middle with Katrina Gorey and Gunhilda Jon's daughter and Diana Matheson and um, Desiree Scott is even, I wouldn't call her necessarily skilled, but she's a very good player. But none of them are particularly quick. So what you have are these huge, skilled, intelligent, experienced Thorns midfielders like Horan and Sinclair. And maybe Brure doesn't have the experience, but she towers four or five inches above the rest of these players. And she's just as fast. She's just as strong as them. And these Utah players don't have anywhere to turn when they get the ball. And they have somebody like Lindsey Horan on their back. And we saw it continuously all over the field. The Thorns just getting up into the face of these Utah players. And there just aren't that many teams in the league that are going to be that susceptible to what the Thorns did. If the Thorns were that aggressive against North Carolina, North Carolina would just pass the room and just outrun them because they're faster than the Thorns. And Utah is smaller and not faster than the Thorns. It's just a really bad matchup for them. So I think that we have to take the Utah games with a little bit of grain of salt, just like the 2 nothing victory earlier this year where the Thorns eventually started dropping some games afterwards. Yeah, um, I think one of the other things that we should... Uh, hit on coming out of this game is just that tackle. Um, you said Diana Matheson. Yikes. The tackle on uh, Midge Purse that sent her off on a stretcher led to a yellow card in the game and that we learned today is going to lead to a retroactive red card essentially. essentially. Um, NWSL is suspending her for a game for what, in my opinion, um, should have been a red card on the field. Yeah, clearly in the league's opinion too. I mean, it was it was the worst tackle I've seen all year in the league, um, possibly just because it made contact. We've probably seen worse efforts at the ball. That one was pretty high because Mitch just played the ball, and Diana Matheson still, from behind and from the side, leads with her boot up and catches Mitch right above her right ankle. Uh, we'll probably find out today at practice, uh, in about two hours, how bad Midge's injury was. But it certainly looks like she's going to be out for a while because she couldn't put any weight on it after the game. Yeah, I mean, you saw, if you've seen the like slow motion replay of it, um, <laughs> her ankle turns pretty pretty quickly and severely. It, it does not look good. Um, yes. And it, like you said, it was a terrible tackle. I, I, don't, know, I don't want to put intention on it. I, I don't know. Players are playing hard. and mm. um, Some players play harder than others, Jamie. I don't know that any, I mean, I don't think that most players go out to try to injure someone, but that was a really yeah, no. bad tackle, and it, it, no. it was clearly not a smart play, and I, I deserved Absolutely. a red card, in my opinion, on the field. Um, and it's unfortunate that the, the NWSL wasn't able to get that right on the field and had to correct it after the fact. Zero straight red cards this year in the NWSL. <laughs> what an amazing stat. Well, it is becoming kind of the year of the ankle injury for the Thorns. Obviously, Tobin Heath entered the season with an ankle injury, has had persistent ankle problems. This is Mitch Purse's second ankle injury in a month, basically. And then Andresinha is also dealing with an ankle injury. She's one of three Thorns that are on, I would say, the injury list right now. In addition to Mitch Purse, Andresinha, we're going to find out about her, but I would say that nobody should be inking her into the lineup for this weekend. Caitlin Ford, on the other hand... Mark Parsons has consistently said that three to five week timeline that he told you three weeks ago was persisting. We're here. Yeah. So we're going to have to ask. We're going to have a lot of information directly after this podcast. Yes. Uh, so we'll have to <laughs> check out Twitter and Oregon Live and places like that to get that information because unfortunately we won't be saying it here. But yeah, we, we obviously it's going to be big to see. Um, if Ford could potentially come in three to five, I, I wouldn't necessarily assume she's coming in this week, but we will see. <laughs> and then even if she comes in, we're probably looking at 15 or 30 minutes and then a half and then competing for the starting yeah. job. But when that happens and when person P- Andresinha comes back, just think of the depth that the thorns are going to have already at right back. There's going to be a choice between a returning Catherine Reynolds and Ellie Carpenter, who has been playing great. 
when Ford is healthy and starts playing, one of Tobin Heath, not going to happen, and Anna Maria Sinagorcevic and Haley Rosso is going to go to the bench at that point. And for me personally, when Andresinha comes back, I don't know that she has a spot in the starting 11, at least in my mind. I haven't asked Mark Parsons about this because Celeste Bure is not only playing well, but she's allowing Lindsay Horan to get back to what she does best. So for me, particularly when you're looking at the teams you're going to be play- facing in the playoffs, I'm not sure Andresinha is in the best 11 either. So you just think about that bench that could could be down the road. Purse, Carpenter, Sinagorcevic, or Rosso, Andresinha, or Bure, that's a bench. We'll just see when that bench is coming. If it, um, if it you know, <laughs> eight does. games left in the season. Yeah. Uh, it's winding down. Um, there, there's obviously still time left, but we'll see if the Thorns ever get to the point where we're looking at this deep roster that's come together and is at full health. Um, whether that happens this season, I, I think, is a real question. There is light at the end of the tunnel regarding injuries, but that tunnel proceeds to Sunday at 8 o'clock at Providence Park. Houston Dash. The Thorns are 1-0-1 against the Dash so far this year. A 1-1 draw in Houston, but the most recent result down there, a very impressive 3-1 victory that gave the Thorns a little bit of momentum coming back home. As we said, Catherine Reynolds is going to be improving. Houston is fighting to stay in the playoff picture. Jamie, what do you expect on Sunday at Providence Park? Yeah, I think this is a really big game for Houston. I think this is a team that has gotten better, but I, I think the the Thorns faced sort of the Houston team are, that had already gotten you know a little better when they last went to Houston. So it's not like they're going to see something uh, that different than when they went to Houston and were able to get that big win. Um, but it's, it's a team that's fighting for their lives, and um, it's a game that the Thorns at home uh, if they if they want to stay in the playoff picture as well and, and get back to the point they want, this is the type of game they need to show that they can build off the Utah result and, and come in here and get a, a another win. Um, I, I think that they are capable of it. They showed that in Houston, um, but Houston certainly isn't going to be a team that backs down because they need these points if they want to stay in the playoff picture. Yeah, I have nothing to add. I just think it, it's just like last week. It's not a make-or-break game, but it will be a significant setback in terms of the team mentality if they do drop these points at home. Let's skip ahead to the listener questions. I'm going to start with Kelly. Kelly asked, how does Kristen Press feel about being owned by an 18-year-old? I think what she's alluding to is a couple of times we saw Ellie Carpenter, who we knew was going to be a very physically prepared player coming into this league, even at her young age, showed herself to be maybe a little bit more physically prepared than even 29-year-old Kristen Press. Yeah, um, I I, <laughs> I don't know how Christian Vest feels about that. I don't. She probably doesn't have too many feelings. We should have asked her after the game. Um, yeah, we should, we should have asked have. her in those exact so, words. So that carpenter, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Thoughts. <laughs> But I think the, the impressive thing is, is sort of already the growth we're seeing in L.A. Carpenter and what she's been able to do at such a young age. What we've talked a lot about, you know, um, kind of tempering expectations and the, kind of looking at her as a long-term player for the Thorns, not necessarily being in the lineup every weekend. I think, I, I think she's probably, you know, I, I think the expectations are probably higher than they should be, so maybe she's met those expectations. Yeah. Um, I think she's exceeding them. I think yeah. that we actually have to start talking about whether she is one of the team's best 11 players at this point. Yeah, and, and so, um, yeah, I think it's impressive to see something like that, her going up against a player like Christian Press. Um, but I'm sure Press has forgotten about it and has moved on uh, at this point. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> Alex asked, the NWSL playoff race is incredibly tight. Do you think the team can pull it off? The team being the Thorns, I assume. But do you think they're going to finish in the top four? Man, that, it's, Whoa, that was a pause. It's a, it's, <laughs> it's a tough question because I, I think that they'll finish ahead of Utah and Houston. 
I think those teams will fall off ultimately. Okay. Um, so that gets them to at least fifth. Well, that's where, I, where I'm a little concerned because I'm not sure. I mean, we know North Carolina is not falling off, and, and I'm not sure if Orlando. I don't think they can fall off. This point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if Orlando, Seattle, or yeah. especially Chicago now, Sam Kerr, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, is going to fall Patrick off. Sam Kerr. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, yeah. I mean, I, I think this team has done so well in, in previously at finding ways to get the results they need towards the end of the season that I, I guess if I have to predict something, I, I, I say that I think they're going to sneak in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not going to be easy for them to do that because they're going to have to knock off the, with those teams that I, that I mentioned a really good team. And, and those other teams are performing pretty well overall. Um, but you know, maybe Orlando slips, or maybe Chicago slips just enough, um, uh, or may, I guess maybe Seattle as well. But it's close. Um, but I, I definitely am not. I, I definitely am not going to. I don't feel that confident about the Thorns definitely being in playoffs at this point. I think the Thorns have a number of advantages as far as their remaining schedule is concerned, and I'm biased towards looking at this because I spent like six hours looking at this last <laughs> week. But the Thorns have little things like they have the fewest games on short rest, meaning less than five days. A lot of they have the fewest midweek games essentially at this point. They um, Seattle has the toughest schedule if you look at it in terms of opponents' points per game, and Chicago has the fewest home games remaining. Uh, as is, I think a yes or no answer to this is perfectly justifiable, and I think. Given they're coming off a 4 nothing victory, I'm inclined to say yes today. Ask me again on Monday. Fear the Bow says, should Carpenter, Purse, and Cernogosevich be the starting outside backs? That's one too many outside backs. Yes. Um, and it also does not include the name Megan Klingenberg, who I think has I to think, be the first choice at left Well, back. I think that I, I was reading this question. He said Purse. Uh, I, I think I didn't write that in there, left back. And so I think the implication here was does maybe Klingenberg, maybe even Reynolds come off in a formation. Um, so that's the implication I'm going to go with on the question because there was three listed and I, I'm yeah. trying to okay. interpret right. so it. So you're going to take, you're going to take the, the blame on this one. Then. <laughs> it's a transcription error. Well, no, I mean, he, he did put all three on. So I, we're, I, so let's, let's just rephrase this. Who should be the starting fullbacks for the yes. team? I think absolutely no question. Megan Klingenberg in my mind left back. I think she's been the second best left back in the NWSL this year. I think she's incredibly good and incredibly important to this team ethos. The question is at right back where I see three contenders. Purse not really a contender in the coming weeks, but she's there. Carpenter and Reynolds. Who do you think? I, I think, yeah. I mean, Purse is not going to be a contender at the moment. I agree that Megan Klingberg is going to come back in. I, I think Purse has shown well, and even before <laughs> the, that tackle was showing well at left back. I think Cerna Gorsevich, you know, did, did reasonably well coming back in that position, but I think we're going to continue to see her in an attacking position as her prim- primary um, role. So, um, I, I mean, ultimately, I think that Carpenter and Reynolds have to be in that conversation. But I think you're going to want the veteran experience going yeah. down the stretch. And I, I, so I think ultimately, if that's the formation they're going with, with, with just f- four in the back, I, I think you have, to, you have to put Reynolds in there in the big games. I'm with you, too. All right, let's transition to the last parts of the show, the predictions for the coming weekend. We're going to take these games in chronological order as they happen. 3 p.m. kickoff in Los Angeles Timbers at Bank of California Stadium. Their first trip there, the first trip of two games this week against LAFC. Jamie, what's your prediction for the MLS game on Sunday? I am, and I, I think this is a, a pretty optimistic result because they're going to L.A. Um, I'm predicting a 1-1 draw. 
that they're going to find a way to keep this unbeaten streak alive because they have consistently found a way to do that. Uh, and so I'm not ready to ca- predict that that's going to come to an end um, since I believe I was wrong about Atlanta. Uh, so <laughs> we're predicting one and draw. Uh, we're sticking positive with the Timbers. They're going to find a way to get a result here. In games like this throughout the stretch, they have found a way to scrape by a result or scratch out a result. I, I don't know which of those two phrases sounds worse. I want to go with the one that sounds less offensive <laughs> to the team. Uh, my side bet is going to be the Timbers have less than 40% of possession. It's not... I mean, 40% is a pretty low number, so I hope people realize that, but I don't think it's a surprise for anybody to suggest that the Timbers aren't going to be too concerned about possession in this game. Let's go to the game at 8 p.m. on Sunday here at Providence Park. The Thorns, the Houston Dash for the third time this year. First time in Portland. Jamie, your pick. I, I think that they're going to get another win uh, against the Dash as, as they were able to do on the road. It's going to be a 2-0 win, um, and they're going to build off that Utah game. And I've predicted this before. Came up empty-handed on it. I'm going to go back to this well. I'm going with a Haley Rasso goal just because mostly she's do I mean, she's, <laughs> she's pretty much the only attacker that hasn't scored in the last two or three games so hopefully just a little bit of that hunger and i think we see her returning to her overactive feisty involved in everything self and i think that'll play off against houston all right we're at the fantasy update and this week uh third place we have rip city blues with uh 1886 points Fake Plastic Team in second place with 1,910 points. And Beer City FC uh, remains on top. Beer with, City is so good. <laughs> yeah, 1,999 points. Yeah, I'm, I'm just in awe <laughs> of Beer City FC. <laughs> well, we're Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week on Oregon Live, uh, Stumptown Footy, and Timbers.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care. <laughs>